0: If you would turn to John chapter 19, John chapter 19, He is risen, risen amen. I would like to tell today a true story that has been told for the last couple thousand years and it's been told in private, it's been told on streets and buildings, it's been told over coffee, it's been told in homes. And we know of this story in two main ways. One, we know of it in Scripture, that the Scripture records for us this story of Jesus' death and resurrection. But we also know of this story and that people tell this story. And somebody in our life, at some point in time, whether it was somebody like me on a Sunday morning, or maybe it was a parent, told you and I this great story. So we know of it from Scripture. We know of it from transformed people who can't help themselves but tell about the story that Jesus Christ died and He rose. And I think you would agree with me this morning that you and I live in an unbelievably broken world and it's broken in such a way that there is such a longing and hunger for a real transcendent life that is lasting and that can change us. And it just seems so often in a world when you look around, it just seems that that kind of life is ever so elusive from people. But because of the grave and because of the resurrection and its defeat, the defeat of the grave, you and I can know this life in an empowerful, powerful way. Jesus entered the darkness of this world and he comes to the darkened lives of people who have been bound by the evil one because of their sin. And he comes in such a way in this dark world of dominion, and he brings his light, and he brings the incredible freedom of this relationship. You know, when Jesus lived here on earth, he grew up in a home with two parents and other siblings. And we often joke, or at least I do sometimes with people, it must have been terrible to be Jesus' brother or sister, parents saying, why can you not be like your brother? It must have been an incredible responsibility for Mary and Joseph to raise Jesus because you're raising God in your home. As a toddler, He would be more perfect than you, if that's even possible to imagine. But He would be because He was God in a body and He was perfect. This incredible reality that He had come. Can you imagine the responsibility for Jesus when He's a 14-year-old lying in His bed at night in Nazareth, knowing why He came? He would bear the sin of the world in this incredible calling before anything was created, had been placed upon his life and he had embraced it and said, yeah, I will be the one who will rescue man. It's an incredible weighty responsibility for a young man to have. I think he must have been the most joyful person who has ever lived on the planet. And the reason is this, I know he was the man of sorrows. But you and I know that sin brings devastation and chaos and confusion. Jesus never sinned. So personally in his life, he didn't know about this separation that sin does in a relationship with God. It was not until he hung on the cross that he had an idea about separation. And as he hung on the cross, I just want to remind us this morning, he did not become the greatest sinner in the world. Jesus never sinned, even on the cross. He became the sacrifice, and in his body, he bore the sin of the world and became the only sacrifice that could please the Father. But he did not become the greatest sinner, because if Jesus became the greatest sinner, then he sinned, and we have no Redeemer. There is no sac- sacrifice that is sufficient. And so he was perfect, and so therefore I know he was, had this unbelievable joy in his life. He was able... To see up and close, though, growing up here on earth, what sin does to people in regard to relationships and other things. And I believe part of his joy must have been incredibly infectious, and it flowed out of his intimate relationship with the Father in heaven. He would have been the most awesome person to be a friend with. When he laughed and joked, you knew it would always be authentic with him. When he said he appreciated you, you would know that he meant it because there was no pretense with him. And when he said he would pray for you, he would pray for you and you would want no one else but him to be praying for you in the needs in your life. And when you would have spent time with him, he would have really wanted to be there because he would have loved you and appreciated you. We are the most impatient kind of people, but Jesus was this unbelievable patient person. He had come and he was born here and he's God in skin And yet he waited 30 years and he didn't go around saying, hey, I've come, I'm this. He waited 30 years until the father said, okay, now is the time. And when he stepped onto the stage, he poured his life into people and he taught them about God and he showed them who God was. And he had lived this unbelievable life of submission. When he came upon the scene publicly at his baptism, the father affirmed who Jesus is. It says this. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened. That's a baptism right there. The heavens were opened at it. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And then a voice from heaven said this, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. He was so unbelievably captivating that sometimes he would walk by some place and he would say, Hey, follow me. And people would leave Everything that they had been building, everything their life was upon, and they just got up and they walked and they followed him. You want to talk about power when he was here on the earth. Nothing could stop him and nothing could get in the way of him. Listen to what Matthew 4.23 says. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and affliction among the people. So his fame spread through all Syria, and they brought to him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, and those oppressed by demons, those having seizures, and paralytics, and he healed them all. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Not only was authority over the elements, and disease, and sickness, and the demonic, he had this unbelievable, powerful teaching. As a matter of fact, at the very end of Matthew 5 through 7, the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, it says that when he was done, the people were amazed because he taught as one who had authority, not like their religious leaders. The religious leaders and hypocrites could not stand him because there was life connected to him and there was death connected with them. On Monday of last of this past week, we celebrate. The coming of Jesus in regard to whether some believe it's Sunday, some believe it is Monday. But this is what it says. When he came in on the day of where they are celebrating him, on John twelve twelve, it says this. His triumphal entry. The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took palm branches of trees and they went out to meet him crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And then on Friday morning, this is what happened, Luke twenty three eighteen. But they all cried together, away with this man and released to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city and for murder. Pilate, <clears throat> Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. And a third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he be crucified, and their voices prevailed. And so Pilate decided that their demand should be granted, and he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Jesus is taken. We know through various trials, he is beaten, he has robes put on him, and all of this is connected to that this is a promise that is fulfilled. And that's what I want us to see this morning as we begin to walk through the Scripture together. See, way back in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, God came to the garden, and God speaks to Satan. He speaks to Adam, and He speaks to Eve. And when He speaks to Satan, this promise of this one again before the foundation of the world this is what role Jesus was going to play he was going to embrace this he was going to come but there in the garden the father said to the serpent i'm going to put enmity i'm going to put strife between you and the woman in regard to from her one's going to come and you're going to strike his heel and you're going to try to kill him you're going to try to to, to keep him from doing his purpose but he will take his heel that you strike and he will your head, and as we come to Friday, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, this is a promise that is fulfilled all the way back in the garden. That before anything was, God knew what He was going to do, He had a plan, He wasn't making things up along the way. Jesus was going to come and he was going to come and, and this promise that was fulfilled for us is the one that frees us and brings us into relationship. Look with me in John 19 so that we can kind of see what is happening in regard to this. John 19 verse 28. And it says, and after this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished, always wanting to fulfill scripture. Look at this. Thus to fulfill scripture, Jesus said, I Thirst and a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hippopot branch and they held it to his mouth. And when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. And I want to remind you and I this morning his death was a real event. That even those who want to deny the resurrection, history records for us there was a man named Jesus who died on a cross in Jerusalem. At the hand of the Romans. And it says there that knowing all was now finished. Why he came was all finished. I wonder in those moments what Jesus thought as he hung on the cross. Breathing his last breaths. His heart beating for the last moments. And I wonder what he was thinking. This phrase, it is finished, are some of the greatest words ever spoken because of who said them. And where they were said and what had been accomplished, for no one had ever been able to accomplish, nor could any animal sacrifice in the temple or a tent, could accomplish. He had become the only sacrifice that could be made for the rescue of people from their sin. And let me just remind you, he is dead. Look at verse 31 of John 19. Since it was a day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath... For, the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they may be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once <clears throat> there came out blood and water. And he who saw it is born witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth that you may also believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And another scripture says they will look on him whom they have pierced. Look at 38. And after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and he took away his body. Nicodemus also, who had earlier come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is, men and women, children, this morning, listen. This is a devastating moment in the lives of all of those who had known Jesus for years. He is gone. His heart is not beating anymore. There's no brain activity. His body is lifeless. He is gone. He has committed himself to the Father. But physically, he is gone. And everything they experienced, everything they enjoyed, everything they had hoped is gone. Sealed away now by a large rock. His body laying in a tomb. And the Jews lived in a world of death. It was just common for them. And they knew what this meant. He literally is gone. What are they now going to do with their lives? How can they ever go back to what they were doing and what they had experienced? This was all over for them. And they got to be this unique generation to see Jesus, hear Jesus, watch Jesus, touch Jesus, eat with Jesus. Unbelievable generation. And they watched his body be put into a tomb. His death, though, was a great promise that was fulfilled, for it had to take place. Acts two twenty three. Peter on the day of Pentecost says this, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Another reminder that this was God's plan all along. And so I want to remind us on this Easter Sunday morning, 2018, April 1st, no April Fool's joke, Jesus was dead, he is alive. And this was a promise fulfilled by God that God, for the sake of his honor and his glory and his name, Jesus came and he died for us to rescue us so that God would get the glory in the life of Jesus and God would get the glory in our salvation. And all of this is connected to this unbelievable purpose of God where Jesus was going to come, He was going to die, He was going to be raised from the dead so that you and I wouldn't just have to die physically and spiritually and therefore just be separated from Him, but we would only have to die physically, that there would be a a spiritual life that would come through salvation in Jesus. And then one day there will be this great resurrection where our spirit and our body will be reunited and we will live with God forever and ever and ever. So now, John 20, let's talk about the resurrection. Are y'all ready? Are y'all ready? Are you excited? Resurrection, He comes alive. Trace, are you ready? Okay, all right, all right, Trace is ready. Look with me in John chapter 20. This is a beautiful chapter that unveils the heart of God and the hope that you and I have in Christ. I read the resurrection account several times this week, and really since John 20 was the place, there are three themes in John chapter 20. and The first theme is this, saw. Eleven times in John chapter 20, some form of the word, see, saw, seen, is there. The Holy Spirit on that day and in the writing of John chapter 20 wants us to know People literally saw Jesus alive. They saw this. There were eyewitnesses to this. Eleven times the word see in some form is written in John chapter 20. The next emphasis is in John chapter 20 verse 30. Go to there. That's kind of at the end of things, but go, go and go there. So John writes after the resurrection account, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. So watch this. Here's the theme of John chapter 20. People saw that Jesus was alive. Second purpose of John chapter 20, second purpose of the resurrection was this, that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Savior. He's the Messiah. And thirdly, that in Him, we would, by belief in Him, we would have life in His name. So the theme of John 20 is this, People saw Jesus, many eyewitnesses, some of them touched him, some of them were in the room and he just appears, we'll see that, and these are written so that you and I would believe, and so here's the heart this morning of God, he's saying this, I am alive, I am not dead, I'm not in some tomb in Jerusalem still, I am resurrected, I am alive, and John writes this, this has all come to us so that you would believe in his name. And that in His name, you would find life. And we will see as we walk through this today, there are seven evidences that the resurrection is true. And we're not going to walk through all of them, but we'll see them. I'll just touch on them. First one is this, the stone was rolled away. The guards were gone. They had a charge there. The the fact that the guards left when the angel came, the earthquake came, the stone was rolled away and they left, there's proof. The body was gone. The grave clothes were in an ordered fashion. We'll talk about that in a moment. The Sanhedrin, in Matthew chapter 27, 11 through 15, when they come, the Jewish they come and say, hey, listen, earthquake, stone rolled away, body's not there anymore, and so the religious leaders lie, and they know, they know the body's not in the tomb, and so they create this lie, and they bribe the guards in regard to things. There were eyewitnesses to Jesus, And the seventh evidence of the resurrection is this, and it's a fascinating one. His own followers didn't believe he had been raised from the dead. And then for the rest of their lives, when they see him, they will live in light of the glory. And they believe it because they knew that it had come to be true. Look with me in verse 1 now, John chapter 20. Let's talk about some perspectives on the resurrection. John 20, verse 1. First perspective is power. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away. This would have been very early on Sunday morning. The Sabbath would have lasted from Friday night at 6 p.m. to Saturday night at 6 p.m. Because it was the high Sabbath, there were many things connected with that, and so Sunday morning would have been the first opportunity for the women, because of the nighttime, to be able to come to the tomb or anybody to come and so this is Sunday morning it is still dark Mary probably has been thinking about all the events that have happened thinking about what are we going to do with our lives we know that she's not the only one woman who comes to the tomb there are a number of them but in John's account Mary plays a special role because we'll see in a moment she comes back and she says something to him or to Peter and John about this and so he, she has a unique role in the life of John as he records this And when you and I consider the time frame and the time period for a woman to be out early in the morning walking the streets would have not been normal, but I think these women, and Mary particularly was like, did not know what to do with their life. And they loved Jesus so much, and so the only thing that they could do was to go where they knew His body was. And so she gets up early in the morning, she makes her way through the streets of Jerusalem, outside of the city, to the tomb, for she knew where it was. Now, as I said a while ago, John doesn't mention necessarily there are other women there, but there were other women that they either joined up with along the way that were heading there, or maybe they had a plan that they were going to meet in the garden. But we know this, that she went. All accounts of the resurrection, nobody literally sees him walk out of the tomb. Nobody sees it. And the reason is, is by the time the stone is rolled away, he's already been gone. He's gone. He'd been raised. He didn't need the stone to be rolled away. If you can conquer death, you don't need a stone to be rolled away. And he's resurrected and he has this glorified body. And somehow, whether he goes through the top of it, he goes through the front of it, whatever the case is, he is literally gone. No one sees him leave. He didn't need it because he wasn't weak needing the stone to be rolled away. It's interesting that it says here that Mary Magdalene, that when she saw that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb, she didn't investigate any further. She concludes immediately this, somebody has stolen the body. Somebody has stolen the body. And so she immediately runs to find Peter and John to tell them that this unbelievable ultimate dignity, indignity has happened. And so she doesn't even look at the tomb. In verse 11 here in a minute, she's going to come back to the tomb and she's going to look in. But this event, just want to remind you, that when Jesus rose from the dead was an event of unbelievable power. Great, great power. And now for those of us who are in a relationship with Christ, that power that raised Jesus from the dead, guess where it rests and resides? It resides in us so therefore, when we face struggle and trial and temptation, we can't say, I don't have the energy, I don't have the strength, I don't have the pathway to say no to this. No, we do. The resurrection power lives inside of us. Listen to how Paul said it, Ephesians 1.19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ, When he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. This has come to reside in us. And so the first thing, perspective, I want you and I to see this morning about the resurrection is that it is a thing of power, unbelievable power. The grave death has been defeated. Look at verse 2. There's this passionate pursuit that takes place on the day of the resurrection. Verse 2. So she ran, and she went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one to whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. If you'll notice there, she says, they've taken the Lord and we. So there's some other women there that were present, so she's using plural there, and we don't know where they have laid him. They've taken him, and we don't know where it is. And so Mary has jumped to the conclusion that Jesus' body has been stolen. Now look up here, listen to me. I think... This is one of the great evidences and proofs of the resurrection. Here are those who walked with Jesus. He talked, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to die. I'm going to be like Jonah. I will be in the belly of the well for three days, and I will be like that, and I will rise again. He's been telling them this is coming, but guess what? They still don't understand it. It's not clear to them. And so here's those who heard it and heard it and heard it here on the day of the resurrection, and she thinks he's not alive, but somebody has taken his dead body. And she doesn't specify to Peter and John who she thinks has taken it, but it is gone. And look at verse 3. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Now again, it doesn't explicitly tell us that Mary came back with them. We know that she does, but they take off out of the room. Can you imagine what Peter must have felt? He had had a bad night a couple of nights ago, horrible night. You can find him in the middle of the night weeping in the streets of Jerusalem because he had denied his Lord and said, I don't know him, I don't know him, I don't know him. And now Mary comes and says, the body is gone. And so Peter and John, she knows where they are. They take off running toward the tomb. Look at verse 4. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I always think that's funny. And here's why I think it's funny. By the time John wrote this gospel, Peter was dead. And I wonder if Peter had been alive, that twice in the text here, John wants everybody to know that he was faster runner than Peter was. He just wants everybody to know we were running together, But John, likely because John was younger, because he lived into the late 80s, 90s, almost to the second century, was probably the youngest disciple. And if you don't think age makes a factor, go play basketball with your older kids. And if you just have younger kids, give it about five or six more years, and it's just a different story. Age makes a difference, all right? So here's Peter, John. They're running to the tomb. John gets there first. Look at verse 5. So John gets there. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. So John arrives first, and he does something that Mary didn't do. Mary sees the stone rolled away, and she just takes off to go tell Peter and John about this. John gets there first, and he does this. He stoops down, literally means to bend. Back in those days, some of our Hollywood movies have not done us well. You see these big, huge doors of the tombs, and you've got to get these large stones. The openings of these tombs were probably just about three foot high. They weren't real tall, and so you kind of had to stoop down. You could get the bodies in there, but can you imagine all the tombs and all the people dying? How many big stones you would have to get? It was just impossible to do that. So so the openings to these tombs were not huge. And so John gets there, and the stone's rolled away. It's a big stone, but he's able to look inside, and there's enough light to look in and he looks in and he sees the clothing of Jesus being there. And he sees it and the implication is simply this. Watch this. That when John looks in in the morning light coming into the tomb the clothing is laying as if someone was there and just literally was lifted up out of it. Now Peter's going to tell us something different here in just a moment but the cloth that he had been wrapped in is literally just lying there it's an amazing thought that jesus has just been physical body resurrected body lifted out and his resurrection his His death clothing is just lying there look at verse six then simon peter came old man slow following him john's outside peter went into the tomb it says and he saw watch what peter sees he sees two things he saw the linen cloth lying there. John saw that, verse 7. And Peter saw the face cloth, which had been wrapped on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but the head cloth was folded up in a place by itself. Verse 8. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. So Peter and John, both standing in the tomb. And it says that when John went in, he saw and believed. For as yet, they had not understood the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their home. I love this picture. Here's John. And Peter just comes and probably knocks him out of the way, gets into the room, and he's standing there, just like Peter. And it says that when Peter got inside, he saw the clothing that his body had been wrapped in, but then he saw something unique about his head. It's been said that there were two miracles on that day. One, Jesus rising from the dead. And secondly, a single man got up on the greatest day of his life and folded clothing and set it there nicely. The emphasis here, I think that Peter sees this and that John sees the grave clothes, is this. They were lying in an orderly manner, indicating to them what? The body had not been stolen. It just was in orderly form. He had just come up out of his clothing. And he came up and for some reason he took this piece that was on his head and he folded it up neatly and he set it down right there. Now watch this. Three Greek words for see are mentioned right here. The first one that says when John was stooping in, he saw the linen cloths lying there. This Greek word means to glance. So John just glanced in and he saw the clothing lying there. It says when Peter stepped in, it says, and Peter saw the clothing, and he saw the headpiece folded up. That Greek word means to take careful notice. So Peter steps inside. He's looking at both pieces of this grave clothing, and he, and he, he doesn't glance at it. He looks at it, and he's thinking about it. And then it says, John steps into the tomb, and it says this, that when he saw, this Greek word means this, To get a mental picture that leads to an understanding. And what does it say that John does? In some primitive way it says this, John saw it and he believed. Now we don't know how much they believed, what he actually believed, because in verse 9 it tells us that they didn't fully understand the resurrection until Jesus explained the scriptures later to them that night. But somehow, in some kind of way, John had some kind of believing moment there. But Peter took, as he stepped in, took careful notice, but it indicates that John believed something about that day that was unique and different. Let me contrast some things for us this morning. When Lazarus came out by the tomb, he was still wrapped in his grave clothing, and in a sense, Lazarus was going to need grave clothing again. The significance of the grave cloth there on the stone still in Jesus' tomb is he was not going to need them again. He just literally came up out of them. Because he wasn't going to need them again for he would not die a second time. When he comes back again, it will not be like the first time. He's coming back with great authority and no enemies, Satan, nothing will stop King Jesus when he comes back the second time. You see, when Jesus came out, he didn't go, oh, let me kind of take this because we're going to need a shroud of turn one day to kind of prove that I've risen from the dead and you know we're going to have all this kind of stuff. All that stuff is is the deal. We believe and we know this through faith that he, re- he rose from the dead and he didn't take anything with him because he didn't need a memento. He didn't need something to memorialize. He had conquered the grave and that was the greatest thing and he literally left his clothes there. And so... It says this and it's look look what it says there in verse 10. And it says then the disciples went back to their homes. Can you it's just understatement here. Sometimes you're just like give us scripture, can you give me some more detail? So they're standing in the tomb. He's gone. Grave clothes orderly folded. John looks and some kind of belief happens in John's heart. Something amazing has happened and take, taken place. And then it says they just go home. And the reason they go home is they're not fully convinced that a resurrection has taken place. And I'll just say this, there's been so many theories throughout the ages about the resurrection. And one of the most popular ones is this, that the body was stolen. That someone came in, either the Romans, the Jews did, or the disciples came and stole the body. John 19.39, we read it a while ago, Nicodemus brought... 75 pounds of spices to wrap Jesus in. Now, here's what happens. So they had this cloth. They would roll Jesus, put spices, roll Jesus, put spices until 70 pounds worth, 75 pounds worth of that were there. And then they laid his body on this stone slab in the tomb. And if somebody would have come in to steal the body, the easiest thing to do would not be, or the hardest thing to do would be to unwrap the body and take all of that time with all of the spices. That would take too much time and then the cloth would just be kind of thrown everywhere. And so I think an evidence that he rose from the dead was the orderliness. And that's why John is emphasizing the grave clothes and this headpiece. It just would not have been that way. It would have taken a long time to unwind all of that. And then you would have to carry a body that had been dead for a couple of days where it smelled and the disease and all of that kind of stuff that's happening. So that just is a foolish, foolish thing. And people have attacked the resurrection forever and ever. And you know why? It's the linchpin of everything. Because if all you have is Friday without the resurrection, then you just have a dead man. But the resurrection is this culmination, this apex of what happened on this weekend. Jesus is alive. Look at verse 11. Verse 11. So, Mary somehow gets back to the tomb. Peter and John run. She makes her way back, and it says, Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look inside the tomb this time. And when she looked inside, she didn't just see linen clothing, she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Well, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. It is clear in verse 11 that after she went and found Peter, she made her way back, and she looks inside. Peter and John have now gone. She's there, and she just doesn't know what to do but to make her way back to where Jesus was, and now she's just confounded. His body is gone. And she's weeping outside the tomb. It's the same word in John 11 with Lazarus when the people were there and they're mourning and they're just weeping. It's out loud weeping. I mean out loud weeping. It's the kind of weeping I've heard some of y'all have done at uh, um, I Can Only Imagine movie I've heard. I haven't seen it yet, but I heard that that's like a, man, there's just like noise taking place in the theater, just a moving thing. She's just weeping and weeping and weeping. Jesus' body is gone. She looks inside. No grave. She didn't see the grave clothes. Not saying that they're not there, but she sees two angels in white, one sitting where his feet was and one sitting where his head was. And she gets to see something way more glorious than they did. Now listen to this. Listen to this beautiful picture. I love the symbolism of Scripture. Remember the Ark of the Covenant? On top of the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat that the high priest would sprinkle blood, but on the corner's On the top of the Ark of the Covenant, what were there? Made of gold, two cherubs, two angels, facing, okay, angels there. Look what you see in the tomb. Just as it was with the Ark of the Covenant with angels there, indicating the presence of God in the mercy seat, here it is in the tomb where Jesus had been, and you got two angels sitting there giving great evidence. You see, in the Old Testament, God had met His people in a tent, And then he had met them in the temple when it was built. And now God is meeting them in the tomb, saying to them, he's alive. He is alive. And so they ask her, not about the empty tomb, but they're saying, why are you crying, woman? It's almost as if they're saying, this should be a joyful moment. Why are you crying? This is not a morning for sadness. This is a morning for gladness and Mary. Changes her tune from verse two. She goes to Peter and John says, they've taken the Lord. As she speaks to the angels, she, sa- she says this, he is my Lord, and I don't know where they've taken him. It's much more personal for her now, in this moment. And heartache just brings this perplexity for Mary, and she's got this broken heart. Where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? And her heart is just perplexed not knowing what to do and sometimes life is that way we just can't make sense of the moment but here's the deal just like mary you and i have to do this we have got to move past the tomb just staring in it the tomb is not some this great memorial where we worship and we just stay there but it is to point to us he's not in there anymore you can't find him in there he's outside of the tomb now and mary needs an encounter with jesus To change a perspective as she looked inside the tomb. And maybe you are there this morning. On this Easter Sunday morning. You are stuck at a place where it's time to move on. It's time to shift your eyes from an empty tomb of not having enough money. An empty tomb of my past is too bad. An empty tomb of this. And you're just staring. And to be reminded this morning to shift your eyes on King Jesus who's no longer in there. He's conquered death things. He's all about life. Turn and gaze at the glory of who he is. Look at 13 again. And so they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said, They've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. And she said to them, They've taken away my Lord. And look at 14. Having said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there. But it says this, She did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Same thing the angel said. And then he adds one, Whom are you seeking? And she supposed him to be the gardener. Uh, Yeah, uh, yeah, yes, in a sense. He's the gardener of life. He's the one who brings life and builds things and grows things. But she just thinks he's the guy taking care of the tomb area. And she said, Sir, she makes an assumption. If you've carried him away, will you please tell me where you laid him? And I will take him away. Like she was actually going to be able to do that. She wasn't going to be able to carry him away. But just see the stress and the, how distraught she is. Jesus is gone. We're not told, but it's obvious in the resurrection accounts, Jesus' body is different. Do you see that? They, the guys on the road to Emmaus, they can't really recognize him. There's something about his body, this resurrected body, that is different. So Mary makes two assumptions. This is the gardener. And he probably or possibly is the one who has taken the body. See, here's what unbelief will do in our lives. It will blind us from seeing the Lord's activity and seeing his presence. She's standing in the presence of Jesus. She can't fully see it because they have not even imagined that this is a resurrection. This is a body that has been stolen. But here's what happens in our lives. so beautiful. Look at 16. Jesus said to her, Mary, and when he spoke her name, she recognized the voice, and she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. When he calls her by name, he immediately comes in focus. I don't know if cameras are this way. I know Keith's a photographer. I used to have a camera, and you would press the button down and it would immediately, everything would become clear. The shutter, you remember that? I, and I don't know if that's that way anymore. And, it, and that's kind of the way it happened. Jesus, she can't fully see and understand that that's him. It's not the gardener. But when he says her name, it's as if that button has been clicked. Everything has become clear. And you know why? Jesus in John 10 said this, My sheep know my what? My voice. And so when he spoke her name, she immediately knew that is the Lord and look what happens in 17 she must have in that moment gone over and grabbed him in some way for Jesus says to her do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the father but go to my brothers and say to them I'm ascending my father and your father to my God and your God incidentally this is the first time in the scripture the word brothers is used On the day of the resurrection, Jesus is saying this, this relationship together, I've called you friends before, I've called you servants and slaves before, and now he is on the day of the resurrection saying, this is family, brothers, go tell the brothers, go tell the brothers that I am alive. Things are different now. And the implication of the text here is that Mary has come over and she grabs his feet, probably, And she won't let go. Can you blame her? She's like going, you're not getting away again. (laughs) I'm hanging on to you. You're not going anywhere. And he says, Mary, things have changed now. Mary, Mary, don't cling to me in this manner. Things are different. I'm going to go away. He's been telling them, I'm going to the Father. And I'm going to go away and I'm going to send the Spirit. And the Spirit is going to live inside of you. And so she's just clinging. And so Jesus says, Don't do this. Now, in a, in a, in a little bit, we're going to see here that he's going to tell Thomas, You can touch me. And it's a different word that's there, but in this the word, cling is a different idea. She's clinging, thinking things are going to be the way they were. And Jesus is saying, Hey, things have changed. I'm going to leave. I have not yet ascended to the Father. So don't, don't cling. To this, things are different now. I have conquered the grave. And they didn't fully understand it all. And they came to understand it over the next days. And Can I ask you a question this morning? What Jesus are you clinging to today? Because there's some people in the world that like to cling just to baby Jesus. Some people just like to cling to a picture of Jesus hanging on the cross. Some people like to cling to revolutionary Jesus. He's the one who fights the religious establishment. Some people like turning over the money changers' tables in the temple, Jesus? Or are you and I clinging to the risen, living, exalted, reigning, coming back again, Jesus? Because that's the one we've got to cling to. And that's what he's telling her. This is an incredible moment here in the temple. Now watch this in the temple, here in the tomb. Listen to this. The first person who gets to see the risen Jesus is a woman who in her lifetime had once had seven demons living inside of her. Seven demons living inside of her. Jesus obviously delivered her from these demons. And now she's in the tomb. Her past is marked with the demonic, evil, things connected with whatever she did with that. Now she's there clinging to Jesus In his presence, first person who gets to see Jesus. And I love the point of that. God redeems our past, God gives us a present, God gives us a future. Through Jesus, not through any other means, not through anything else. And the first person who gets to see the risen Jesus is this woman who used to have seven demons inside of her. Jesus could have done this any other kind of way. He could have gone, gone from the top of the temple and said, here I am. He could have marched down the street and knocked on Pilate's door. That dream that your wife was having has come true, here I am. He could have gone to the high priest house and said I'm back but here's the reality the first person the resurrection Lord appears to as a woman without hope deeply broken hearted and he doesn't shout his resurrection he just simply whispers it and says Mary Mary it's me she gets it and she sees it and look what it is look at verse 18 and Mary Magdalene went and she announced to the disciples I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things To her, One of the other gospel writers says this. They thought, just just couldn't believe her. Just wasn't telling the truth. They just could not believe that this had happened. Well, Luke 24 happens. We're not going to do that. There's two guys leaving Jerusalem. They're going to Emmaus. Jesus walks with them and spends a good part of the afternoon on the day of the resurrection. Walking with two guys to another city outside of Jerusalem. And uh, he explains who he is through the scripture. They get to Emmaus that night. Um, it's dark and so they go in and they're eating bread and they realize Jesus has been with us this is Jesus who's been with us all day explaining who he is through the scripture and he immediately disappears in their presence and they go back to Jerusalem and they say we have seen the Lord now look at 19 this brings us to nighttime after Luke 24 the two guys on Emmaus and Jesus on the day of the resurrection speaks a message of peace On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors were being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. And Jesus came, stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So they're locked away thinking, What happened to Jesus is going to happen to me? They're looking for us. I just want to remind you this morning, locked doors will not give you perfect peace for the inner turmoil of your heart. And it also cannot keep Jesus out of the room. He can do what He wants to do. And so here they are, hiding, and He just steps into the room. The significance of the emphasis of these locked doors is this, is that Jesus just enters the room. We don't know if He just appeared, or if He just walked through the door. We don't know. All of a sudden, they're in the room, and Jesus is in the room with them. And He needs to speak this. He speaks three messages apiece over the next eight days. Two on this day, and one eight days from now. And the first message was a peace to to show them who he was, his scars, and to settle them down. Because if somebody appeared in the room this morning, you would need an adult diaper for that moment. And you would need somebody to say, calm yourselves. I know this doesn't seem normal, but look at my scars. Look at my side. It's me. I'm here. I'm risen. Another gospel writer says that they wrestle with this. And so he says to them, do you have anything to eat? And so they give him fish and he eats it. So he shows, and his first sermon was peace. First words were, peace, calm your heart. Don't fear the authorities. I have conquered the grave. Peace to you. He does this to us, and then he gives them identification. If you don't think it's me, I've got scars, and you can see them. Can you just imagine that moment? They are looking at the scars on Jesus' body. It's him. He shows up and he gives these frightened disciples what they need most, his presence. He gives them his presence. Look at, verse, look at verse 21 now. Here's the second piece. And so he said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold this forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Watch this. He gives them peace to commission them. He's going to ascend 50 days from now. He's not going to be here. And they're to wait in Jerusalem. And Jesus, well, excuse me. He's going to ascend. And the Spirit's going to come 50 days from this moment on the night of the resurrection. The Spirit's going to come. And He's telling them... You're going to now take the role that I've had. I went everywhere and, we've been, and I've been telling and preaching. Now you're going to take the message. And so this second piece is to commission them saying, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. He breathed on them. This is an early picture, a partial giving of the Holy Spirit because they were going to need power to take the gospel to the nations. And then it says this, he tells them this, and this is going to be a gospel of forgiveness. Now they couldn't forgive sin. I can't forgive sin. Only God can forgive sin sin but the point jesus was making was this when you go and you preach this you're going to preach that people's sins can be forgiven if they reject it you will tell the people god doesn't forgive your sin if they you preach this and they trust in jesus then you will tell them your sin is forgiven so he's telling them this is going to be a gospel of forgiveness and i don't know about you but i know that our world today is hungry and longing for a gospel of forgiveness they're longing for it. Longing, longing for it. And Thomas is not there. Look at 24. Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said, unless I see his hands in the mark of his nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Thomas' is proof, don't miss church. I don't know where he was, but he wasn't there. He should have been in the room, and he missed it. And he has to wait eight days. Look at verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them, although, although the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. It must have been a long eight days for Thomas, hearing them talk about, We saw the Lord, we saw the Lord, and him thinking, I just don't believe it. Look at 27. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands and put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? And with the words, my Lord and my God, Thomas affirms the faith that was not present in him eight days earlier. And with these words, Lord and God, he affirms the deity of Jesus, the glory of Jesus. He realizes that, not, that only the slain one who is now risen gets to have these exalted titles. And there's Thomas looking at the wounds again. I think you and I should, from time to time, ponder that reality. You remember Revelation chapter 5? There's the title deed to the earth that the Father has in His hand. And they looked on earth and they looked in heaven and they looked under the earth and no one was found worthy to open the scroll. And John is in his vision, he's weeping. And one with him says, stop crying. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he's worthy. And John looked and he said, I saw one there who, who looked like a lamb that was what? Slain, meaning what? John saw what? Scars. You know when we get to heaven, he'll still have the scars. John sees that. It's a future thing John sees. He sees this reality. The scars will be there and they will be a reminder to you and I that he's King Jesus. He conquered the grave. He rose from the dead. He's the Lord of life. He's the Lord of all. He's everything. And the last thing I want to share this morning is simply this. There's lots of things we could talk about proofs of the resurrection. I kind of briefly mentioned to them about 30 minutes ago. But here's the reality. One of the greatest evidences of the resurrection was simply this. Is these people gave the rest of their lives in martyrdom. Telling the testimony and the story that Jesus had risen from the grave. They believed it in the depths of their being. They didn't get it fully that night, and it wasn't until Jesus opened the scriptures that they understood it. And listen, they did not fake a resurrection because they were not expecting one. They didn't understand it. So it's ludicrous to blame the disciples for stealing the body and faking all of this because their unbelief becomes this unwavering belief, and they died for the truth that Jesus. And so the resurrection. Is critical point of this weekend, and this is why there's been so much attack with it. But you and I just want to say, He's risen. He's risen. He's risen. We believe it. We affirm it. We sing it. Salvation comes through belief. Romans 10. That if you believe with your mouth, and you you confess with your mouth, and you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead you will be saved. So it's a key thing to our salvation. I hope you have a great lunch today. Whatever it is you're going to put in your body. Do not go to sleep tonight without thinking about what's been done for you. This is the high point of our faith in regard to celebrations. God had come here. He literally died he literally literally rose. He ascended. He sits. He's interceding. And he's coming back. And we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever and ever. So if you know him today, I can pronounce this morning, your sins are forgiven. If you don't know him today, I can pronounce this morning, your sins are not forgiven. And you should come to him. You should bow your heart. You should trust in Jesus. And come to faith in him. I'm going to be standing at the back. If you have any doubts about that. You want to talk about your salvation. Mark and I will be back there. We'd love to talk with you about that. And pray with you. Just about the assurance of your salvation. But if you want to know for sure. That you know him. We'd love to talk with you. Let's pray.